Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. I'm really looking forward to tonight's chat about beavers. Yes, indeed. We're going to be talking about beavers. You will remember that back in February, we had the pleasure of speaking with Irish-born vet Dr. Sean McCormack, chair of the Ealing Wildlife Group, about plans to reintroduce a large aquatic mammal that has been missing from England for over 400 years, the Eurasian beaver. These fascinating mammals the largest native British members of the rodent family, they are indeed rodents, were exterminated due to overhunting and habitat destruction. And the species suffered a similar fate across most of Europe, which was a disaster not just for the beavers themselves, but for the entire wetland ecosystems. Why? Well, because beavers are often given as the textbook example of a keystone species. This is a unique organism which supports an entire biological community. And the way that beavers do this is through building dams that raise and lower water levels and slow the flow rate of rivers and streams. And by creating and maintaining vital wetland habitats and helping to alleviate the risks of flooding, these aquatic architects bring a lot of value to their surroundings. Now, following a successful reintroduction project in Scotland, conservationists now feel that the time is right for beavers to return to their former haunts in southern England. They have been beavering (laughs) away for some time now, and their plans have finally come to fruition. Joining me tonight from his home in Malahide, Dr Richard Collins, and in studio, Niall Hatch. But in this special programme dedicated to the London Beaver Reintroduction Project, we can say hello once again to Sean McCormack, who has some fascinating news to share. London's first beaver family in more than four centuries is finally in residence. Sean, you have released the beavers. We have. They finally arrived after about two years of hard work. <laughs> so take us back to the beginning of the project. I had this kind of mad idea that beavers might be the solution to some of our problems in urban wetlands in London, in Ealing, where I live. I was really interested in water voles, which are Britain's fastest declining mammal. They used to live in the borough of Ealing and it was lockdown times when we had that hour of exercise. I decided to go out and survey some of our wetland habitats and find out once and for all if we still had any water voles left. Mm -hmm. And I unfortunately realised it was unlikely that we did. And just talking to some water vole experts and then seeing the rewilding narrative unfold here in the UK and and beavers coming back into the landscape, I realised that actually beavers are the keystone species that would create the uh, environment for water voles to thrive again in Ealing. And um, got talking to a few people and and joined a group called the London Beaver Working Group um, who were looking to answer two questions. One is, what would we do if beavers arrived of their own accord in London? (laughs) And secondly would we think of reintroducing beavers to London first and learn how to live alongside them again? So that was the the kind of seed of it. It was about water voles and that light bulb moment that actually beavers would create the habitats for water voles and lots of other things too. So it's all thanks to the water voles. So what would you have done if beavers had arrived of their own volition? Well, I think having lived in Vancouver and seeing um, beavers, you know, in the urban landscape there and having visited cities in Europe like Berlin and Munich, I was, wasn't that surprised that, you know, beavers can show up in towns and cities again. And they're not the wilderness species that many people think they are. I certainly thought when I was a kid, you know, beavers were just in the wilds of Alaska and Russia and you know, fur trappers were encountering them. But actually, they do quite well on urban river catchments and they can bring a lot of benefits not only to the kind of ecosystem, but also to us. So I think we would have just learned to manage them and um, there might have been some kind of nuisance effects that some people would have been happy with, like flooding the wrong places or taking down the wrong trees. But a lot of what I've learned in the last uh, couple of years on this journey is that you can mitigate for any um, kind of problems that beavers can bring very, very easily and cheaply. And actually you can harness what beavers do for, for good. So at this site, Paradise Fields in Greenford in the north of Ealing, we have actually convinced the council that this is a more cheap and sustainable way to solve the issue of urban flooding here. All right, so I suppose you should really describe exactly where you are because we can hear aircraft going overhead and you said Ealing, so you're not too far from Heathrow Airport. 
No, we're directly under the Heathrow flight path. So we're about halfway in Ealing between Heathrow Airport and the centre of London. Um, so it's West London and I'm in the north of the borough, which um, does have quite a lot of open green space. Um, I'm on one side of the canal in a 10 hectare site called Paradise Fields, which is a wonderful name. And on the other side um, is about 90 hectares of green space, which is um, mainly meadow and woodland. Now, there's a little brook that runs through here called the Costans Brook. You can probably just about hear it um, trickling um, over the beaver's first dam, believe it or not, um, mm. to my left. And um, down to my right, there's a large reed-lined lagoon or main pond um, where the beavers are hanging out right now. They've just been here a few days and I'm starting to see the early signs of their presence now. How many did you introduce? We got a family of five. Um, they We're jokingly referring to them as Asbo beavers from Scotland um, because they've been moved from farmland where the farmer didn't want them oh, in his um, farmland. Um, they were blocking up his drainage channels and causing a little bit of a nuisance. So they got an antisocial behaviour order and they've moved to London instead. And how long did you keep them before releasing them? So we partnered with um, the Beaver Trust, which is a charity that are trying to restore beavers across the UK. And um, they were in quarantine for about a month. They had to go und undergo several health tests and, and checks and make sure that they were healthy, that they didn't have any, you know, infectious disease problems or anything like that, that they were fit for travel and that they would be a healthy family unit coming down um, here to this project. So, yeah, five of them, mum, dad, uh, a youngster, a young daughter from last year and two small kids from this year. So they tend to live in, in family groups like that. And how do they live? So they live in um, normally about three generations um, hang around together and in the kind of second or third year of the youngsters uh, life they tend to disperse and find their own territories. But they will form, depending on the habitat, either a burrow into a bank and they'll cover it over with sticks or they'll have a standalone lodge which is a large construction where they are taking down trees for food, taking the bark and leaves off the trees, but then chopping up the wood to use for building their lodge, which is their home, or their dams for um, creating deep water around where they're living. Everything they do is designed to put deep water between them and danger. And historically, danger for beavers in the UK would have been bears, wolves, lynx, all of those animals are gone now. Um, so now we're kind of talking more about humans and dogs, especially in the urban landscape. So we expect that this place will change quite a lot and they'll create big beaver ponds and, and more deep water and more complex wetlands here that eventually we'll look at reintroducing water voles to. Now, you introduced them last week. Did you have a lodge already built, a man-made one, an artificial lodge with cameras in it and lights and everything else like Big Brother <laughs> <laughs> or Big I Beaver? <laughs> I, exactly, you're entering the Big Beaver house now. We, we wish we could have done, but to be honest with you, beavers do their own thing. So what we were advised to do by our friends at the Beaver Trust was throw in a lot of willow branches and brash and things into the, the sides of the main pond. Um, where there's reeds and where there's lots of cover and they'll seek shelter under that. And believe it or not, Derek, just about 10 minutes ago, it's day six now, but I've spotted the beavers for the very first time and I know where they're hiding out until they make their own lodge. Day and it's actually six under the a big of... beaver house. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh God, exactly. I can feel it coming exactly. Well, actually, you know, it's fantastic. I mean, perhaps you should have gone to Big Brother and said, hey, listen, we've got beavers moved in. Why don't you feature it as a sideshow to Big Brother? They probably would, you know. <laughs> They probably would, but it might make for kind of boring TV. Because, you must be um, joking. The a, most exciting I've, TV. There's nothing boring about it. I know you're making it very exciting. Listen, before I open up the mics for Niall and Richard, I just want to ask you very quickly, were they in Ealing? Are you reintroducing them? I mean, I was careful. I said you introduced. Are you reintroducing yes. them? We are. They, they would have been here. For sure they would have been here. It's, it's the jury's out on when that would have happened. They were exterminated in the UK over, just over 400 years ago. Um, we do have some local place names fairly nearby, like the Beverly Brook, which is named after beavers. So we know there was beavers in this part of the country at some point in time. We don't know when they were last in Ealing. And um, I've been reviewing the trail camera footage, so maybe Big Brother would have liked that. And it was interesting to see on the first time I reviewed it, we had a fox, um, a young fox come in. And this fox was literally just walking around these beavers going, what the hell are these things? They are not the usual rats I see on mm -hmm. this site. And um, we just had that moment of thinking, these two species, you know, may not have encountered each other on this piece of land for over 500 years, 600 years potentially. You said rats, beavers are rodents. They are rodents. They're our largest um, native rodent here in, in Britain. They're the second largest rodent species in the world after the South American capybara. Um, but they're, they're not that similar to the usual rodent habits that, that we kind of tend to associate mm. with them. They have a fairly slow reproductive rate, so they tend to have 
two to four kits per year. They only start breeding when they're two to three years old. Um, so they're not very prolific and they hold large territories where just the adult breeding pair um, will have babies and, and suppress the other ones in the family from breeding. So it's not like we're going to be overtaken by a plague of beavers anytime soon. Well, I think it's fantastic that you're doing this, Sean, particularly because you're from Ireland. Just tell people where you're from originally. Yeah, so I'm born in Kilkenny. We moved around a little bit with Dad's job and then we ended up in Selbridge, County Kildare, where my family all still live. And you appeared on Mooney Goes Wild an awful long time ago. Terry Flanagan reminded me the other day. Yes, I did. I got Terry out to my house because I don't know if any of your listeners remember the show Super Garden. Um, on ah, RTE, yeah. I was on the first series of that, raking a wildlife garden, and I brought Terry to my original wildlife garden that I made after my leaving cert in my mum and dad's house. So, and yeah, how long was ago out. was that? A long, long time ago. Probably, I'm guessing, 20 years ago. Oh no, my goodness. Ago. 15, 16 years ago. We're on the air, ago, is it 30 years in 2025, Niall, if I'm not mistaken? Sounds 30 right. years, yeah, 2025. Years. Anyway, and Niall Hatch had a big grin on his face the entire time you were talking there, Sean, so I'll let Niall take over. Great. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Uh, beavers really are remarkable animals. As you mentioned, they are keystone species. They're so important ecologically, and I think that the areas that have, have lost them are much the poorer for, the, for, for because of that. The very first time I ever saw one in the wild, I'd expected uh, it would be in some far-flung nature reserve. It was right in the city centre of Warsaw in Poland, just swimming along yeah. the river there, and I was re- immediately taken with how, how comfortable it was in that very urbanised environment. And the people there also seemed to really take these animals to heart. They had a real respect for them. Have you encountered much opposition from people who are maybe frightened of the risk of flooding or perhaps even for some reason frightened of these animals? I know they're no threat whatsoever to humans but sometimes it can take a while for that message to get through to people. It can and I think this is a fear of the unknown. You know we haven't lived alongside these animals in over 400 years so if you don't know what they're going to do or you listen to some of the um, negativity surrounding them you can understandably be worried about them. Now overwhelmingly the reaction to this project you know over the last couple of years as we've been talking about it we've been doing public consultation overwhelmingly it's fantastically positive and I think that may be a feature of the urban landscape that people want nature back on their doorstep again we might have had more opposition in farming um, you know kind of environments um, where people are worried about their livelihood will these beavers cause damage cause flooding things like that so um, there's been a small but vocal um, minority of people who have you know been slightly anti um one of the main concerns that came out in the public consultation was not about what will the beavers do or will they be difficult to manage or will they cause negative effects um for us but actually for the beavers welfare they were worried about would humans disturb them would they be happy in an urban environment would they be at danger from dogs and we've had to reassure that beavers do live in towns and cities all over the world and they get habituated to human activity and they do very, very well and they can do good things for us. And in terms of the dog kind of issue, they're going to create deep water around their homes and, and they're going to be very well protected. They've lived on this earth far longer than we've existed, believe it or not, they're quite a primitive species. So I think they'll be fine. And we have an army of volunteers on this project that are only delighted to be coming in with me now daily um, during this first month and doing fence patrols and checking our cameras with me and wanting to come on site when we open to the public again on November 11th and be stewards and really champion um, beavers and what they can do. So I'm, I'm not too worried. I know that uh, with, with, with beavers, um, when they make this deep water for protection around their lodges, and they use their dams to do this, they create quite a lot of deep water, as you were saying there, and there's huge knock-on benefits there for, for fish. I know that uh, in many rivers, trout and species like that can benefit. It's great for amphibians as well. And a lot of people think that, uh, mistakenly, that the beavers actually want to build the, the, the dams so they can catch those fish, but they're totally vegetarian. It's just a knock-on benefit. They don't really mean to benefit the fish, but it's one of the great ancillary benefits that they bring. It is, yeah. And, you know, we do have concern from the angling community as well. That was one of the kind of vocal um, criticisms originally because there's a bit of confusion about beavers and what they eat. And apparently it dates back to C.S. Lewis, uh, Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, mm-hmm. where the, he depicted beavers eating fish on a frying pan. <laughs> so people are getting them confused with otters that are, you know, um, fish eaters. But beavers are entirely herbivorous. They feed on aquatic vegetation and trees and, and, and plants exclusively. 
So that's not going to be an issue. And the other thing they do, as you said, Niall, is, you know, they're creating these large open watery habitats, but they're also taking down trees to use for building and for food. And what that does is it in- introduces pulses of light into the aquatic ecosystem where the ground flora or the riparian edge flora can really um, come alive and increase in diversity of species and create the more complex mosaic habitats that aquatic systems need, you know, open light aquatic systems that support a lot of life. And that's one of the issues with Paradise Fields and why perhaps water voles have died out here. Water voles we're sort of using as our indicator species for the health of this ecosystem here. One of the reasons the the habitat is degraded is we have a lot of willow on site and the willow has completely overshaded the brook so that the brook is fairly lifeless. We've done lots of baseline kind of ecological surveying. We've been surveying for aquatic invertebrates in the brook and it's really, really low diversity and low numbers of species that really just survive in quite stagnant environments rather than really healthy, thriving ecosystems. So we're hoping as the beavers open up this place, introduce more water, introduce more light and the whole place will come alive. And we've been studying and getting experts in all kinds of things from ants to wasps to bats to birds to amphibians all coming in and doing our pre-release surveying this year and then we'll follow that up for the next five years of the project and see what benefits and what biodiversity improvements but also bioabundance improvements that beavers will bring. I'm just wondering Sean you know I'm sure you're aware that the National Parks and Wildlife Service have reintroduced ospreys to Ireland and the news is very yes. good so far. They're en route already to Africa from the southeast of Ireland where they were held in pens. Now they're bringing between 50 and 70 birds in over the next five years. How many beavers will you have to bring in or is it enough to bring in a family of five and leave it at that? I mean they can't be all mating with each other can they? They can't. That's a great question and it kind of goes back to the key objectives of this project. So this project is not about reinstating the beaver as a species across Greater London. This project is the real seed of that process, which is about changing some hearts and minds and getting over that um, initial worry that people have about living alongside beavers again. So although these beavers are wild, they are in an enclosure. Now, it's a very generous enclosure. The uh, Beaver Trust recommend two hectares per family of beavers in an enclosure. And Natural England are only granting licenses for enclosed trials of beaver introductions in England at the moment. We've given them eight hectares. We've given them a huge area of prime habitat to really see what they can do and what they can achieve in this five-year trial period. If we were to, you know, be reinstating them across Greater London, yes, we would need to have lots and lots of families on every river catchment so that we're avoiding inbreeding and things. So we will have to manage this beaver population or this beaver family by taking out some of the youngsters um, in year three, four, five, six um, of their lives and taking them to other projects so we don't have inbreeding. But actually the adults will suppress breeding if they're you know, in a family territory. It's only the adult pair that will breed um, and the youngsters will just help to build and help to modify the landscape alongside them. Now, I've heard it said that the habitats here in Ireland would suit the beaver, but as I understand it, there's no evidence that beavers were ever in Ireland. But Richard Collins, I'm sure you would love to see beavers in Malahide. Yes, I would. I've seen beavers abroad. But one thing I have not experienced, and I wonder if you will be experiencing it in London, is their alarm signal. The alarm signal is not a song. It's actually banging the big flat tail onto the water, slapping the water. I've never heard that. And I've looked, I've been in Vancouver as well and in beaver habitat over there and in Poland, but I've never heard the banging thing. Uh, if in the absence of rival pairs around or whatever, will this beaver start banging in the water at all? Well, Richard, believe it or not, I just heard it 15 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> so it's day six and um, I haven't seen sighters. Well, I've seen signs of the beavers but I have not seen them since we released them with the Mayor of London last Wednesday but I was just waiting for the call from Derek today and I went up to the viewing platform which looks out over the main pond and suddenly I heard a splash below me and they were sheltering in a dead hedge that our volunteers had made at the edge of the viewing pond to prevent dogs going in and two little kits went out first and then mum came out after and she saw me and she let an almighty smash of her tail on the surface of the water and the whole pond shook and off they went through the reed beds into the main um, pond. So I've heard that for the very first time literally minutes ago. 
Well, now, will they continue doing that? After all, they've arrived in a strange place. They want to check out to see, are there rival beaver families around or whatever is around? So it's understandable that they would broadcast this alarm signal just to test things out. In a week or two's time, when they realise they're all on their own and there's no threat from anyone, will they continue doing it? I think they'll become quite habituated to this site and to the fact there's going to be a lot of human activity. You know, I've seen them in urban areas before. They're very blasé. They just get on with what they're doing, maybe on the far bank rather than on near banks where people are. But um, no, I think that will lessen with time. Now, the interesting thing at this stage of the project is the site is closed to the public for one month as part of our license conditions to allow them to settle in, allow them to create shelter for themselves and feel really secure on site before we start opening to the public again. So maybe in a month's time when um, people are coming in again, we might start to spook them a little bit or, or they might get agitated. But I think over time they'll settle in here and it will take a lot for them to start tail slapping. And, and it's almost like a bird's alarm call, isn't it? Yes, it is the same thing, except that it's done with physically, not by, by, not vocally, shall we say. It seems to me the beaver has lots of strange things to its credit. I think it probably invented coppicing. Uh, coppicing is yeah. where you cut the tree and uh, leave the stump there, and the stump then sprouts out in mushroom fashion uh, in all directions. So the gardeners have adopted this now, but and they probably despise beavers, or are hostile to beavers, but they owe beavers this, do they? They do, yeah. So one of the main um, concerns, especially in these times where people are concerned about the environment and we hear that tree planting is the solution to climate change and things, people are very protective of trees. So one of the worries is, why are you introducing beavers when beavers eat trees or fell trees? Aren't they bad for the environment? But actually, all of our native trees evolved alongside beavers to grow again from the base and also other large herbivores, I'd have to say, if you go back far enough in time. They say that some of our trees are designed to withstand uh, the attacks or the kind of grazing and, and felling pressure of ancient rhinoceros species and elephant species and things. So if we go far enough back, these trees are adapted alongside these herbivores or these keystone species and agents of change. And yeah, if a beaver fells a tree at the base, it comes back again. And what they introduce then is instead of a, what I'm looking at right now is basically a very dominant willow canopy, all of the same age, beavers will introduce a new age diversity structure to the landscape and a new physical um, structure and pulses of light happening in different areas of the aquatic ecosystem as they fell trees. And it just creates more structural diversity for lots of other species. The new growth of those trees, you know, is attractive to different insects and different birds and things as well. So they were meant to be here. We've just forgotten all about them. It's classic shifting baseline syndrome, if you've ever heard of that expression. Well, one of the surprises you get when you see your first beaver close up is how big they are. They are very big creatures. Now, presumably this is because they are vegetarians and vegetarians take a long time to digest their food. Cattle, sheep, elephants, for instance, take days to digest their meals, shall we say. So presumably yeah. beavers are big because they need to be big for this or possibly the cold of the river. Or is that a factor? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons probably from an evolutionary point of view. As you say, you know, it's difficult to digest all this plant material and beavers are eating a lot of woody material as well. They're eating the bark as well as the leaves of, of trees and things. So they need a large gut to ferment their food with bacterial fermentation, as many herbivores do. So they need a lot of space in their abdomen. The female of our family was the biggest one. She was 30 kilos when she was trapped. Now she lost about two kilos in captivity, but she's a large, impressive animal. When I saw her first, I was quite astonished. She's bigger than a Springer Spaniel dog. <laughs> so a lot of people think of beavers as these little watery rodents that are living in the riverbanks or, you know, making little lodges and things. But they're a large, impressive animal. And I think they have to also be large because of their lifestyle of taking down massive trees and modifying the landscape. Um, and in prehistoric times, we had um, several species of beaver and one of them stood taller at the shoulder than most um, humans. So there were giant beavers in the past and we've just got two species left now, the, the North American and the Eurasian beaver, which we have. They seem to be socially rather conservative mammals. For instance, herbivores generally, I think almost in all cases, are polygamous. Uh, you take mm. cattle, sheep, giraffes, but this fellow isn't. He is monogamous. He sticks with the same partner for life and is very rigid in doing that. 
Yeah, it is quite unusual. It's it's very unusual for rodents, but it's unusual enough in the mammal kingdom as well, and, and specifically herbivores. The reason is their lifestyle, um, they want to work cooperatively. So they're almost like, if, if you think about the social insects, ants and, and bees and wasps and things, they're working together as a unit where one beaver just wouldn't be able to create the protection and the um, lifestyle that they need on their own. So they kind of join up and join into family groups. So you'll have that one dominant um, breeding pair and then at least two generations of their youngsters all working together to modify the environment to keep the clan safe. They've become totally adapted to the aquatic environment and they don't like to leave about kind of a 20 metre distance from the water's edge. And I think one beaver alone in the world when all of those predators did exist, like our lynx, bears, wolves and, and so on, would have been a very vulnerable animal um, if it had to do all that work by itself. So it's, it's come from um, creating that, that niche that uh, has come from working together and creating a really, really secure environment, a secure place to shelter away from all of those predators that want a piece of beavers, us included back in the day, because let's not forget they were exterminated because we were hunting them for their meat and for their amazingly dense pelts and also for their castorium glands. Now, that you mentioned social cooperation there. It's, they are exponents of what's called the deer enemy effect, a tolerance of uh, enemies that they know. The devil, you know, what's the Godfather's famous line? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Uh, as opposed to the nasty neighbor effect, where you get very angry if the intruder is a near neighbor, not so angry if he's a stranger. Uh, develop that a bit. Is this a feature of beaver society? They have these, this trade-off of two effects. I think so. So socially, they are highly, highly territorial. Um, other beavers passing through a beaver territory, if they're youngsters dispersing, it's one of the highest mortality rates or mortality reasons for young beavers is actually beaver on beaver aggression as they come closer to other closely guarded territories. So they will not tolerate other beavers um, in their territory because they've worked hard to develop it, to make it safe for them. All the assets and, and kind of resources in it are extremely precious to them. So yeah, they don't tolerate other beavers well. And young beavers striking out on their own really do have a hard time finding a little slot to fit into and finding a, a territory of their own. So um, yeah, they, they're tolerant of, of lots of other animals, but very, very aggressive to each other. And when I was up in Scotland with the Beaver Trust and they were trapping and, and translocating beavers, I saw a beaver with pretty bad wounds on its rump, basically, where it's swimming away from a, an attacking beaver and it got pretty severe bites and things. So they're very close-knit as a family unit or as a clan. But if an intruding beaver comes in, then um, all hell breaks loose. Now, you mentioned that they're enclosed and this is a controlled enclosure and that it is, yeah. they're, they're going to be there for five years. Well, now, beavers, as I understand it, be, the youngsters become mature at about three and a half or thereabouts. So in, in five years' time, you're going to have, if they all survive, five eager beavers uh, to get out there. Uh, but where can they go? There's a river running through that habitat and it leads down to the Thames, does it? Will they yeah. be allowed out and will they establish new or do you hope they will establish new territories on the Thames? Well, my hope eventually is that this kind of hesitancy that the government has and some of the public have around beavers, which are a native species that we, we eliminated and just inherently have the, the right to be here, but also bring benefits. I, I would hope that eventually down the line, whether it's five, ten or twenty years, that we have beavers back on most river catchments in the UK because they should be there and they also bring benefits. Here it's a little bit trickier. Obviously we're um, in an urban environment. A lot of the green spaces we have are fragmented or there's you know blockages of very urban areas in between certain segments. So the Costins Brook is the little tributary that runs through this site and then that runs into the Brent River and then that runs into the Thames. We can't just say, right, well, these beavers are breeding, we'll just keep chucking them out of the enclosure. First, it's currently illegal to do that. Um, and secondly, we want to determine their effects and really prove the model of having beavers back and what they can do for us. So there will be an element of management needed for us um, on this project. We're going to have to 
to prevent aggression, um, we're going to have to probably take out some of our younger dispersing age beavers and um, donate them to other projects. The, the enclosure actually is so big it, it could support two beaver families in terms of size and there's two pond areas in it that they could easily um, live alongside each other but we don't want aggression in the enclosure so we're going to have to just do a bit of management and, and keep these animals in a, a number and a level that is preventing aggression but also is really educational and hopefully will contribute to the, the cause of restoring beavers on a wider level. With your Irish hat on you, Sean, doesn't it seem inconceivable that beavers were not in this country? Is it simply that we haven't been lucky enough to find their remains? They're up in Finland and Sweden and Norway, and they recolonized these places because beavers in Europe dropped to a very low ebb and went back there. Surely they must have, when the ice melted and there's fresh water on top of the salt water and so on and so forth, and this is an aquatic animal, surely it must have come to Ireland. I don't know. I mean, the, the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, is it? That's what I would say as a vet as well, often, um, when I'm talking to clients about test results and things. Um, we don't have evidence of beavers in Ireland. That's not to say that they didn't make it there. But it's quite a controversial thing to say, well, we think they might have, so let's reintroduce them anyway. We need to be careful about reintroducing non-native species and not knowing what effects they will cause over time I would say I'd be very surprised if you know there's no evidence somewhere out there for um, beavers having existed in Ireland but then again if you think about the the biodiversity differences just between the UK and Ireland you know people are astonished over here when I tell them we don't have moles, we don't have roe deer, we don't have all of these species that British people take for granted that just apparently didn't cross that land bridge um, after the last ice age. So, you know, it's, it's plausible in both directions that maybe beavers didn't get there, but I would be surprised if they didn't. And I think the lack of evidence um, is a frustrating thing because beavers certainly, I would imagine, could have Um, exactly the same benefits in Ireland as they do just across here, across the Irish Sea in Britain. Well, speaking of bridges and speaking of Irish hats, there was a wooden bridge across the River Dodder in Donnerbrook, where I'm from, which was replaced by an iron bridge. And that was constructed for the workers who lived in the cottages on Beaver Row, which is beside the bus garage. Anybody who's ever travelling into Dublin via Donnybrook, you'll see the bus garage on the left-hand side. And Beaver Row was where there was a beaver hat factory. So the beavers left their hats here, if nothing uh, else. And uh, Sean, that, I think that was back in the 1800s, yeah, by the way. And John, I think that that, that points to, to one of the primary reasons why beavers would have first been driven to extinction in Britain and in many other parts of their range um, across Europe and indeed across a lot of North America with the North American beaver. It's because they were hunted for their pelts, um, which hopefully isn't going to be a problem nowadays in London. But it's a sobering thought, really, isn't it, to realise that it was, it was we humans through our greed and avarice that drove this species to extinction. We did, and um, Richard alluded to the fact in, in Europe, they were da- they think they were down to only about a thousand beavers left um, in Europe, and they've since recolonized of their own accord, but also through reintroduction projects across various countries. And if you think about it genetically, you know, obviously we are concerned about inbreeding, but that species underwent a real genetic bottleneck being down to a thousand um, individuals in, in Europe at one point in time. Um, and it's recovered perfectly and there doesn't seem to be any genetic health problems um, within the species that, that are evident right now. But yeah, it was through through them being a very valuable animal for us to, to utilise or to harvest. And um, we took their fur. We ate their meat and then they have this incredible um, scent gland secretion called castorium, which is released from the kind of anal glands and it's a, a social signalling cue. It's very highly pungent in smell. Um, so we used it for perfumery and flavouring. Apparently it has a vanilla flavouring. Now I've been up close and personal with it and I would not uh, flavour any of my food with it. But also it was said to have medicinal qualities because well, a large part of a beaver's diet or their favourite tree at least is willow which contains salicylic acid which is the active ingredient in aspirin. So um, some people maybe in medieval times were flavouring their beer with castorium and realised they weren't getting hangovers after because uh, they were taking aspirin uh, as well and they didn't have a headache in the morning maybe. I have no idea how they found that out but that's my theory anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that, yeah, quite seriously it was one of the primary flavouring agents in some forms of vanilla ice cream in the past and it's actually still used legally especially in North America. It's it's, it's an expensive substance so it's rare but it is 
still used. But I believe that there are ways that it can be harvested commercially without actually causing harm to the animals. They don't actually have to be killed. It can be okay. milked in a way. But uh, yeah, it's kind of strange to thinking beaver anal secretions being used in ice cream. Lovely, Nile. Lovely. Listen, you spent a lot of time in North America. You must have come across beavers on your travels. Oh, yes, yes. I, I remember once um, a friend and I, my friend Matt and I, were, were camping by a lake in Manitoba and we put up our tent. And it was a really, it was a full moon, so it was really quite bright. And I just remember we're going to sleep and I just hear this gnawing side sound outside. And then I hear creaking and the tree, maybe five metres from our tent, just sort of keeled over, collapsed down. <laughs> and then I just hear this tree being dragged slowly past the tent. And the beaver actually took it down right beside us. And then we started to hear um, the following morning, we heard those tail slaps that uh, Sean was talking about there. It really sounded like gunshots. It was really quite startling. Uh, and then you realise, wow, what a primeval sound this is. It's, it's a sound that people would have once taken for granted across North America, across so much of Europe, and yet something we don't think about at all anymore. But whales slap their flukes in the water as well, don't they? I've seen it. They, they do. I'd be very surprised if I'd heard that camping by a forest <laughs> lake in the middle of Canada. But, um, but, be but, a big but, beaver. But they do. But I was, I was surprised by how loud it was. It was something that you would certainly sit up and take notice about. And obviously I could see how that would communicate to other beavers over a wide, wide area that there's some sort of threat mm. or some sort of... You know, it's really interesting how they've, how they've evolved that. Or so territorial that, marking. Yeah. And that big, uh, that big tail, I know that in ancient Rome, the Romans really treated beaver tail as a delicacy. They used to jelly it. It was one of their main things. They had at banquets, real sort of luxury like food. Like jelly eel. Uh, quite possibly so. I've never never tried it. I no, never, no I, never I never will try it. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of what the Romans ate, it was very strange food by our modern standards. Things have changed a lot in, in terms of cuisine. I think it, Italian food has come on a lot, a lot since the discovery of things like the tomato. <laughs> Did you ever try yeah. jellied eel? Just out of curiosity now, Sean, that we have you on and you're living in London. I did. I have a friend in East London and he brought me for um, jellied eel pie and mash. Vile. Pie and liquor. Vile. Yeah. Anyway, um, go on. You were going to say something more interesting than that. Go on. I was going to say about um, the beaver tail, actually, really interestingly. They used to consider beavers fish, so you could still eat them on the Sabbath because they lived in an aquatic environment and they had this scaly tail. So they used to think that they're not a mammal, we can still eat them on, you know, Good Friday and on the Sabbath because they're fish. And that is an extraordinary thing. Is it true, strange things you read about, um, you mentioned castoreum. It isn't a normal anal secretion, I gather. It is a different type of gland, yeah. And it comes from the urethra, does it? It's linked to their urinary system, yeah. It's one of the ways you sex beavers. Um, So I was up with Roisin from the Beaver Trust, who who brought us our family of beavers, and we were health checking um, with their vet um, some of some of the beavers that had been subsequently trapped. And one of the ways you sex them is actually um, seeing the colour of their castoreum and um, you exposing the glands. But they are linked to the urinary system, and they're they're very very pungent, yeah. But it's like the anal gland um, kind of social signalling that carnivores do, dogs and, and, and the mustelid family and things like that also secrete a musky secretion, but that's kind of true anal glands, yeah. And why do they need such a strong smell to proclaim territory and keep others warm of their presence? If that's what they are doing, and provide they can slap yeah. the water as well. What is the, yeah. the basis for castoreum? The basis is, I describe it as, it's beaver social media. <laughs> so if you are a beaver travelling through the landscape and you're wondering are, who's around here, what other beavers are here, they leave this scent, you know, and they mark um, their territory with this scent. So you can um, go by where a beaver was a week ago and you can tell who that beaver is. Is it a sexually mature male or female? Maybe you even know that it's a, a long distant relative of yours, but it tells you a lot of social information about that individual animal. So, yeah, I'm jokingly telling everyone it's beaver social media. Dogs and lampposts. Another curious thing um, I've read is that the beaver, he's carrying sticks back to build build dams and and, and his lodge and so forth. He's able, it seems, to put a stick between his teeth and close his mouth behind the teeth. Is that true? That is true. And I saw with my my own eyes, um, again, about two weeks ago, I was up in Scotland with the Beaver Trust and we were doing these health checks and we had a beaver under anaesthetic to do a full health check and and x-rays and things. And basically they've got quite fleshy inner cheeks. Um, So the incisors, which are the big orange um, front teeth that they use to gnaw, 
they're lined with um, iron in the front section and um, the enamel is softer behind, so it creates a chisel-like environment. Those teeth can basically operate by sliding the jaw forward and um, that pincher movement, and then they kind of suck in the cheeks behind those teeth. So the only thing exposed is the incisor teeth. The rest of the mouth is totally closed and sealed shut by the inner cheeks, and that means that when they're gnawing a tree and all of these chips of wood and sawdust are, are coming off the tree, they're not inhaling that into their mouth. It's not going in. And it's also helpful for moving the branches. So when they take down a tree and they process it up into um, manageable lengths, they can stick that branch between their incisors and they can close their mouth and they can even dive with those branches and um, bring them up to their dam or they can use it to pull a lot of branches and, and vegetation down underwater for their winter larders, where in very cold climates, they'll actually store a lot of food material under the ice for the winter. And they'll come out their underwater um, entrance to their lodge and take in some branches from the lake bottom or pond bottom and bring it into their lodge to eat it. So they're totally designed to be able to do all of this underwater without um, taking any um, water into their mouth. Now, you do, you, these are the engineers of the landscape. Now, they don't just use the landscape. They create the landscape. Beavers are quite unlike other creatures in that they shape the landscape. I believe that there are regions in Sweden that have been identified as created by ancient beavers, rendered extinct, but they're reintroduced now. But has anyone got their eye in for spotting what might be a beaver legacy in the landscape? It would be very useful in Ireland if we could go around and say, oh, I suspect beavers having been here look at that ridge there and look at that depression there uh, is that a, a, an avenue some budding PhD student might go out and investigate this and find a way of identifying the presence of beavers without having to actually find any bones what do you think I know it would be <laughs> certainly very very useful to know wouldn't it I haven't heard of any of that research going on in Britain or or in Ireland um, but it would definitely be very useful to know. Um, but yeah, I have seen some of those kind of aerial images and uh, some of the evidence from Scandinavia of these landscapes that beavers actually made. Yeah. Sean, you mentioned um, about the uh, veterinary um, check on that beaver in Scotland and how, for, for the checkup, that you would anaesthetise the beaver. Now, presumably that's mainly to uh, just make sure the animal doesn't suffer undue stress and it's kept nice and calm. But I also expect that it's to protect the vet too. I wouldn't want to get a nip <laughs> from those teeth. No, you would not. It is definitely a beaver welfare and human safety uh, need to anaesthetise them because those teeth are pretty, pretty impressive. And as I say, they're lined with iron in the front um, aspect. So they're blood orange, basically, in colour um, on the on the front aspect. They can take down, you know, a large tree in the space of a night. Um, you know, they're chomping, chomping, chomping away and felling trees. So um, getting a chomp of a beaver on your finger or your arm is say goodbye uh, to an appendage, I think. So yeah, it's for, for human safety as well as, you know, decreasing the stress of, of the beavers. Um, but just absolutely fascinating and such a privilege to see them, you know, up close and handle them and just see what an impressive animal they are. I think everyone who saw the pictures on my social media said, oh my God, they're huge. I never realised they were so big. And absolutely, you know, perfectly designed to its lifestyle and its ecological niche. Mm. It's just a perfectly designed and evolved animal. And they're great swimmers too. I believe they can swim at something like eight kilometres per hour, which is twice as fast as a human can swim. Think about it. Right, right. Yeah, I didn't know that stat. I'll be, I'll be repeating that one. But yeah, you look at their big um, back feet are really, really large, almost the size in an adult beaver, almost the size of a human hand. And they've got webbed feet so they can really propel themselves with those webbed feet and with the tail as a paddle as well. Um, so they can they can definitely reach um, pretty, pretty impressive speeds. How is the Scottish population doing at the moment and how is Scotland doing with the beavers? Are we starting to see already the big ecological benefits that this species brings? In a couple of regions we are, um, so it's a bit of a mixed bag in Scotland. They estimate that there's about 2,000 um, beavers living freely wild in Scotland and there's some enclosures as well. Now Scotland, um, Nature Scott, who are the kind of um, government body in Scotland for nature restoration and management, they are way ahead of natural England. Um, in terms of beaver reintroduction. So they're starting to issue wild release licenses for beavers in Scotland. Um, the RSPB released a uh, beaver family last year of seven onto Loch Lomond, and they've just got a license to release two more families for that genetic diversity they need. Um, so beavers are starting to come back and colonise of their own accord and with now with licensed free releases in Scotland. The same, unfortunately, can't be said for England. Um, there's promises coming down the line and being delayed, but we haven't seen any free release licenses in England yet. Um, but there are free living beavers in 
England because um, like it or not, um, some people did take it into their own hands in the last 20, 25 years and illegally release beavers in certain areas. So we've got beavers living wild in Devon, in Kent, in Oxfordshire, um, in Cornwall. Um, and one of our justifications for this project was beavers are coming back anyway, despite what we do and despite what we license, there's free living populations to the west of London in Oxfordshire and to the south of London in Kent. And it's only a matter of time before they come back. But um, yeah, I've been to Scotland and I've seen their wild landscapes up there that have had beavers in for 20 years. And Niall, I think it was you mentioned the word primeval earlier. It truly is primeval. You feel like stepping back in time, walking into an established beaver wetland because it just looks otherworldly. It looks different to what we're used to in our kind of, you know, human managed landscapes. And it's just really wild. And if you come in summertime, it, the place is buzzing. There's birds, there's dragonflies buzzing around at dusk. There's tons of bats feeding on all the insects. There's frogs croaking in the ponds. There's little rustles here and there. And the whole place is just buzzing. And um, I've heard them described as, you know, a biodiversity magic pill that you put them back into the landscape and just everything comes alive. And I've seen it for myself. It's definitely true, you know. You're making me want to hug a beaver. There's no question about it. You really are selling it to me. Listen, can you clear something up? Are you yeah. ready, Sean? Are you sitting down? Richard, are you sitting down comfortably? Yes, ready yes. For this? I'm Niall, ready for the shock. Indeed. Listener, are I'm, you ready? Yeah. There's always a bit of confusion around hibernation. And next week on RT Radio 1, we'll be starting our short season of Nature Nights. And hibernation will feature throughout the week. So, do beavers hibernate? That's the big question. Richard, I'll go to you first. No, they don't. Not okay, true okay. No, hibernation. No, 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 hold on. <laughs> Niall, do beavers hibernate? They become less active, but no, it's not true hibernation. Now, Sean, you're the beaver expert. Do they hibernate? No, I agree with the guys. Okay, so what's going on? <laughs> well, who wants to take it? Richard, you know. <laughs> Well, I, I understand um, that uh, the largest hibernator in these islands, true hibernator, is the hedgehog. It drops its, I can't give you a figure, it would be a way down almost to room temperature. Well, it wouldn't be room temperature there, it would be outdoor temperature, and the heartbeat goes away down. But a big animal can't really afford to do that. It takes too long uh, to, to come back up again if you, if you sink your temperature and your metabolism way down. So things like bears don't actually hibernate they, tor- they go into torpid a torpid state you know like, oh, but, but what I can tell you Richard is that normally a hedgehog's heartbeat is about 190 beats per minute and it drops to 20 beats per minute during hibernation and body temperature core temperature from 35 degrees Celsius right down to 10 degrees or less <laughs> I know that um, the, the beavers being being rodents they're, they're, there's another rodent that we get in these islands that often people mistakenly think hibernates but doesn't that would be the red squirrel which which remains active during the winter being fellow rodents they have a similar strategy I know that beavers will cache food in the same way that, that squirrels are famous for gathering together hazelnuts and things like that so they will have a supply of food to help them get through the leaner times and the shorter days Sean I'm curious is that something that um, that you, you, you expect to see now in, in, in the coming weeks those beavers getting ready for the winter and getting ready to prepare for that season yeah, they definitely do feed up like many mammals do. They feed up in the autumn time and, and try and, and consume more rich foods and things. Um, one of their favourite plants, believe it or not, is bramble. So there's a lot of bramble here. And um, when the berries are out, they'll certainly take those as well. But no, they, they don't hibernate. And as I said earlier, in, in very cold climates, so if you do go to you know Canada, Alaska, um, Russia, you see beavers living on frozen lakes. They have no choice but to um, create huge larders of branches and leaves and things under the water because they can't access above the waterline. So um, they'll sit together in a lodge and they'll huddle up and they'll keep warm and they'll get less active. And when they need food, they'll go out, slip out under the water and grab that food and bring it back into the lodge to eat. But I joked last night, someone was asking about these beavers, would they hibernate? And I said, well, they're in relatively tropical London now compared to where they came from in Scotland. Um, It's very mild here. Uh, You know, we have that city effect, um, the the heat effect of the city on our doorstep. And um, it doesn't freeze over very often or very severely for long here. So they'll still be out and active and, and feeding on the trees and vegetation in the winter on this side, I expect. It just shows you what how important urban spaces are as repositories for wildlife now. There's so many species that are able to make a home there. Predation is often reduced for them. There's an abundance of food. They tend to be a bit warmer and safer. And so it's not really surprising that beavers can thrive in that environment too. 
Exactly. London is a real um, melting pot in, in kind of human communities, but also in the wildlife communities. So we were very surprised to discover edible dormice, a species that actually does hibernate here in Ealing as well a couple of years ago. No one knows where they've come from. Their stronghold is the Chilterns, but they're a non-native rodent that was introduced by Lord Rothschild of the Tring Estate around his um, estate uh, back in early 1900s. I think you were on Autumn Watch featuring those edible dormice, weren't you? I was, yes, yeah, last year, or the year before last. Um, featuring Why are they called dormice, edible yeah. dormice? They're called edible dormice because many cultures, but the Romans are very much known for this. The Romans used to eat them apparently as delicacies at banquets and they had specific clay pots called glyraria, the uh, dormice family is Gliridae. So they had Glyraria, which were these large round ceramic pots with little shelves um, on the inside where the dormice could sit. And they used to kind of force feed the dormice in these pots until they were extremely fat, which is a feature of the dormice to to get over hibernation. They will lay down as much fat as they can. And then they used to roast them in honey and serve them at banquets. And if you had the fattest edible dormice on your banquet table, it was a sign of affluence and status. They're still eaten, apparently, in um, Slovenia and some other parts of Eastern Europe occasionally. But um, we don't eat them here in Ealing yet. I don't fancy that. Richard, would you fancy <laughs> an edible dormouse? Oh, well, uh, it, as you describe it, it's kind of tempting. I know, but it's perverse <laughs> for, for, for even to suggest it. I believe that there's dormouse were recorded in the Midlands here in Ireland. I wonder if they're still there. Uh, how they got they there, were. of course, is, is another one of them. dormice. Mm. Yeah, the hazel dormice. Yeah, the hazel, the yeah, but British one. Yeah. yeah. How did they get here? You mentioned how they they got to Ely. How did they get to here? It's even more extraordinary. Well, we think one of the theories with Ealing is um, the Chilterns, where they do live, are not too far away, and have they come in on either horticultural products or kind of tree surgeons' trucks, or you know, moving moving vegetation and wood, and they hibernate in old hollows and things in trees. So there could have just been the odd little dormouse getting here, making its way and meeting up with another dormouse, and and suddenly we've got a population of them. So these little things can sometimes be moved around accidentally and sometimes hitch a ride. Uh, So who knows? We're probably never going to get to the bottom of that one. Anyway, Sean, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you for the last hour. Really wonderful and a real treat for anybody who loves nature. Absolutely. Thank you, Sean. That was a really fascinating discussion. Brilliant chat to you guys. Yeah. Sean, that was great. I bet you'd love to go there and see them, Richard. I would absolutely love to. I've been on uh, beaver safaris. I was on the one in Poland, which was very interesting. At dusk, well, it was always dark, and we got very close to beavers. You have to organise beaver safaris in Ealing. We have them on the agenda for next spring. (laughs) Ah, well, we'll all come and do a live programme from there. Sean, thank you very much indeed. Best of luck with the project. Bye. Thanks, You're more than welcome anytime. Bye. Bye. Thank you. There goes Sean. Wasn't he absolutely amazing? That's, that's a man who can talk about beavers, certainly. <laughs> certainly can. Now, Niall, just before we go, you want to talk about a wonderful exhibition which has taken place in the Central Bank on North Wall of all places in Dublin. That's right, yeah. It's very impressive. I had the great uh, privilege there at the launch of the exhibition to actually be asked to go and say a few words on behalf of, of Birdwatch Ireland because the exhibition, it's a wonderful array of paintings about Ireland's birds. It's called Irish Birds in Watercolour. It's by a fantastic Dublin artist called Tony McNally. It's being hosted there by the Central Bank on North Wall. Key, not too far down from the convention centre, that, that part of Dublin. And it's um, been devised by and designed and organised by the Five Lamps Arts Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's free, it's open to the public, free of charge. It's open uh, Monday to Friday in the bank between 10am uh, and 4pm. Well worth checking out. Tony's a fantastic artist. Great to see Irish native birds being celebrated in that way. How long does it run? It runs until the 27th of October. OK, so people still have time to get in there. Absolutely, well worth a view. Well Just a few in. days, but still time enough. Anyway, Richard, thank you very much indeed. We'll talk to you soon. Good luck, Terry. And everyone, bye. There goes Richard Nile. Thank you. Thanks to our broadcast coordinator, Daniel Keating, and our researcher, Michelle Brown. That's all we have time for. Visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash mini. Don't forget, Nature Night starts right here on RTE Radio 1 next Tuesday. Talk to you then. Bye.